we're really passionate about banning single-use makeup wipes. And in the UK, Selfridges and Holland and Barrett, these retailers, have actually banned the sale of single-use makeup wipes. And so has the Body Shop. It's massive because in the UK especially, there's something like 11 billion makeup wipes that end up in landfill and in their waterways. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're curious and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for some hard-hitting truths, a dose of inspo, and learnings you can apply right away. Strap in. How many face wipes do you think hit landfill every single day? It's millions, which if you calculate over a year is pretty damn gross. We're chatting to Lizzie Pike, the founder and creator of Face Halo, a reusable makeup remover that was brought to life in 2017 from the desire to remove makeup quickly, effectively and sustainably. As far as entrepreneurs go, this is Lizzie's second business. She even told us that it took her 20 years to come up with that good idea. We think she's doing okay. Anna and I had a really great conversation with Lizzie about manufacturing, sustainability, failure, and even her business partnership with the world's biggest beauty influencer, Chloe Morello. We also tried desperately to extract some really exciting launch news this coming March. So Lizzie, you started back in 2017, which really isn't all that long ago, but we would love to know where did the idea for Face Halo come from? So I had been working in textiles. My husband and I had an online business in the US with similar sort of materials, but we hadn't gone into the the beauty space. And while we were doing that business, I was noticed that there was a gap in the beauty business for something along this line of reusable, environmentally friendly, because we're very passionate about that. But also having a teenage daughter, it had to be gentle on your skin and good for sensitive skin. So then we sold that business. So then we started exploring something that we could work with within the beauty business. And there really wasn't anything on the market that ticked all the boxes for me. There was, you know, just a couple of things here or there. It's not like the technology hadn't been around for a long time, but there was nothing that had been created within the beauty space that looked good, felt good, and obviously worked better than anything that you would ever use. So We found a manufacturer, we we explored a lot and we uh, landed up with our manufacturer in Korea because Korea being, you know, the home of K-beauty and they're really well-renowned for their beauty regime and we've got a very good relationship with our manufacturer. We've been to him, he's been out here in Australia and then we found, we got worked with a designer in the US to actually create the look and shape of what we now know as Face Halo. That's how it all began. So we definitely want to dive into the manufacturing process a little bit with you. But before we we talk about that, I'm curious, you know, you recognise this gap in the market for a reusable makeup, taking off your makeup solution that wasn't single-use makeup wipes. You had a background in textiles. Did you have a really clear idea about what you wanted the product to look like in terms of not only the design, but also the textile and the fabric? Or did you just have a really clear idea about you what you wanted it to do? So both, actually. 
I had a clear idea of both. I really wanted it to be, and we went through a lot of prototypes before we landed on what we had because first and foremost, it had to be really soft and plush and gentle on the skin. So really like a lot of our customers say, oh, it's soft like a cloud. And that's exactly the response that I was looking for because when you put something on your face, it has to be gentle and soft, but it also has to look good so that people go, they want to put it on their face and try it because our face is the one part and the the most gentle skin on our body and the one part of our our body that we really, everybody likes to look after because the first thing everyone looks at is our face. So yes, it had to feel good first and then I wanted it to look good too. So can you take us through the process of actually reaching out and finding your first manufacturer? How did you go about doing that? Well, because we had been in the industry for a while, we did know of some manufacturers, some European ones and in Korea. And then we, we got some prototypes and it was our Korean manufacturer that we had the best relationship with, but of obviously he, the integrity and the quality of how he works was really, really important to us. And his prototypes were the best. We were giving him instructions on what I wanted again, to the efficacy and the soft and plush. And then so we were getting all the different materials from him and then I was giving him more direction. I want I want it more like this or softer like this, a little bit longer. And he was able to work with us like that, so accommodating. And that's what you want. And so choosing the right manufacturer is really important whenever you're going to be creating products or launching products because especially these days, finding the right manufacturer that you can go and visit the site. We work very closely with our, and now we've kind of, you know, gone and worked with him where we've created a whole warehouse ourselves with him in the fact that we know the people that work there, you know the staff, because it's super important. Because if you're going to launch into e-tailers and retailers such as Harrods and Netaporte and all these other people, they they want to know your manufacturing process. It's got to have that ethical background to it, right? It's super important these days. So again, that's why we, we chose the manufacturer that we did. So you found an ethical manufacturer. Obviously, there was, an integ- there was integrity in the product. Um, you were really happy with the prototypes that were coming back to you. What other signs were you looking for in terms of finding the right partner? So finding the right partner in, you know, the quality of the manufacturing is super important because if you don't have the quality there, then it's not going to sell. You know, people won't come back for for repeat. So you've got to have the quality. And also another one working with our manufacturer is it's really important for us to go here and say, oh, can you please make us a, a I want this or I want that. I want to trial this and trial that. So, because you can work very closely with them. He will send me samples and some will go, no, that's that's not what I'm looking for. This is not it. And they weave, they do a lot of weaving of their own textiles as well. So just, you know, they are a textile company. So being able to work with them closely is very important. And how long did the process take from beginning to end? Did you have a really clear brief from the start? Yeah. Was it quite a collaborative process? And how did you, what did you come out with at the end? Because I'm interested, what, you know, what's the product, the final product, and is it a patent product? Well, you could patent it, but it's too uh, easily subverted is the word, right? Because 
even though you would get a patent on it, someone could make it longer, shorter or a different shape and there's your patent gone. And you would spend what we like to call our marketing money on chasing people legally. So, but really it's a brand is, is the barrier to entry for us. So we would prefer to put all that money into our marketing and our branding and get it out there in as many hands as possible, as opposed to chasing people down the legal path. It's just, it's a waste of money. I'm curious for people that don't have either a background in textiles or necessarily the existing relationships with manufacturers or partners like you did. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to source a manufacturer overseas in terms of how do you actually go about finding the right people to contact and what are some of the right questions that we should be asking? So it can be a challenge to find the right manufacturer for yourself. I think it's somehow probably best to go to people that are in the industry and get some recommendations that way. Because if you're just going to Google a manufacturer and also another thing that, you know, since we've come out with our design and our product, we have people copying us, but they're just buying off a platform, you know, in Asia. They're just buying off a platform and in bulk that way. So they don't know where they're getting it. They don't know who's made it and they don't know the quality behind it. So it is really important if you just Google manufacturer, again, you don't know them. So recommendations are probably the best way to go when it comes to finding the right manufacturer. And that way you just source people who are in the industry. Mm. And what about in terms of vetting the ethical, I guess, standards, Mm. especially because we can't travel anymore. So going in at the moment, going and visiting manufacturers overseas is quite challenging. What are the questions that we should be asking? Where are you sourcing your raw materials from? Or what are your working conditions like? How do we vet? Correct. So it's very much about what are your working conditions? What about your staff? And even though you can't travel, We still have our manufacturer, you know, going around, uh, not in Zooms because you want to carry, but you can do Zooms on your phone or FaceTime and we still have a look at what's happening via, because the digital world now has changed because of COVID. We used to travel everywhere. I used to travel everywhere to meet the beauty editors and the media and do events. And now we do all that via Zoom. Of course, I'm very much looking forward to getting back to person to person. However, there is that substitute. And again, you can do that with your manufacturer. So for anyone wanting to source a manufacturer, definitely that's why a recommendation is always very useful too because you have that background already and then you just get them to either send you photos or videos of their factory. Yeah, it is interesting because we've had a few guests, um, previous guests on the podcast who've gone out to try and source manufacturers and really struggled to Mm. get cut through because they weren't taken seriously. And I guess that's where recommendations, referrals and your own network um, has a role to play. Was that ever an experience for you? Did you ever struggle to get taken seriously? Yes, yes, Mm. in the beginnings. But that's why the manufacturer that we chose... They are such, the Koreans are very, very lovely people, I must say. Their culture is incredibly gentle and kind. And so even though, you know, he was wary and he was like, oh, we'll just, you know, but the MOQs, which is how much you have to order, you still have to order a certain amount, you know, like 20,000, 40,000, whatever it might be. And um, he says to me now, he goes, oh, Lizzie, who would have ever thought when we first started almost four years ago that would be where we are now? 
it's just incredible. So I guess he was prepared to take a risk, whereas some of the ones in Europe were not so much and, you know, the quality of what the prototypes we were getting from them just didn't even match up. So, you know, I guess also it's building that relationship. Like I was on the phone to him weekly, absolutely weekly and FaceTiming and talking to him and really building that relationship because it's super important because then they start to trust you. The manufacturer, he started to trust us and then I started to trust him as well. So that's super important, building that rapport. Absolutely. We say it's like dating. It's the Mm. dating game, building relationships. Yes, yes. Lizzie, can you tell us how much money did you invest in this product development process in the early days? Because it sounds like it did take a little while to get to Mm -hmm. the product that you, you know, now have, um, that you now sell. How much money did you put into that? So I guess what we learned from our other business that we had, online business in the States, which we put a lot of money into, and then we, we sold that. Whereas this time around, we thought, you know, we, we wanted to get proof of concept first. So we did start small and we didn't invest a lot. One of the biggest investments we made in the very beginning was to work with our designer, to come up with a design. We knew, like I knew what I wanted, I knew the colours, but you still have to work with someone just to actually bring that to life because I'm a terrible drawer as well. So um, that was definitely worth the investment doing it that way. And of course, then to work with our manufacturer, it was very clear for him to have that visual once we decided what we wanted there as well. Because once we decided on the material and we got the material right, then we knew we had to invest in the design of it. How did you get proof of concept early on? And how do you get proof of concept on a product when the minimum order quantity is like 10, 20, 30K? Yeah. So what, I mean, we had to do that. We had to invest in in that amount of, of product. And the difference, we had a goal of how much we wanted to be selling a day for the first three months. And then what we wanted to reach in a day for the, the six months. So that was our proof of concept for six months. So we we needed to reach those goals. And in the first month, we hit our six monthly target within the first month. Wow. So then we knew, then we knew that we were we were onto something good. What allowed you to hit that kind of target? So again, in that target, we built up our Instagram first. We started teasing it on Instagram and on Facebook. We also had Chloe, but Chloe didn't come out with her video until two months. So it was also because it was new to the market. We had done videos of Chloe using it, but she hadn't put it on her channel yet. We had videos of Chloe using and demonstrating how it works. And it was just, it was a game changer. No one had seen anything like this. So it was like, wow, that, you know, and then we started getting UGC, we started getting customers who would then, because I'll just loop back for a quick moment. The reason I decided to come out with white, because we were toying with white or black first. And the reason we decided to come out with white is because I knew that people needed to be convinced. Okay. So if, if you were to use the black, you wouldn't see it coming off. And when it's 
down to this kind of technology and it's, people are unfamiliar with it, then they go, well, I'm not really sure. But you cannot deny using taking your makeup off with a white face halo and showing it and you can see all the makeup on there. If you see it, you believe it for all those doubting Thomases, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's important though. Absolutely. Yes. Cool. Yep. Yeah. So that's actually what really helped us to also get to our goal in that month was because when people would use it and they would go, wow, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. And they would post on Instagram and Facebook and we started to get all that, you know, user-generated videos content. and content. Mm. Yeah, thank you. No, that's mm. okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was that UGC, was that organic or was that something that you Absolutely. had? It was, okay. Yeah, that was all organic. And Chloe was the only, because she became part of the company, that was the only part that, but... It was almost organic in a way, in a sense, not organic, but very authentic because through the making of the prototypes, I got introduced to Chloe through a friend and gave her a prototype to try. Being a beauty influencer, you know, it's the perfect sort of test. And she went away and tried it and she loved it so much that she knew that she would never use another makeup wipe again. So because we were in the process of starting the business, she came and said, you know, by any chance would there be room for me in the company because I know I'm never going to use another makeup wipe again. I'm not going to talk about it all the time. And I was like, yeah, for sure. So that's how that came about. And, of course, you're talking about Chloe Morello, who is, Mm, you know, one of the world's biggest beauty influencers. What was your decision-making process in terms of bringing her into the company? Because obviously business partnerships are so critical. You've got to like the person that you bring into the company. You've (laughs) got to make sure that you have complementary skill sets. You've got the same values. What was that process like for you to say, yep, actually, I want you to come on board as a partner? Yeah, absolutely right. Partners have to be a right fit for values and all the rest of it. It was more of a take a risk because... Back then also, and in our other business that we had, the Instagram and the influencer world was not really well known. It was more of a hard slog. So we knew that to do this in the beauty world, that it was either invest the money into someone doing it. But when she said she wanted to be part of the company and uh, we met and she is such a doll. She is an absolute dream boat to work with. So it was taking a risk. And over the years, we seriously, we're so close and I absolutely adore working with her. I feel like she's my other daughter. Um, she's just a dreamboat. And we, were, we we got lucky, basically, because I've worked with people before. And you're right, you know, everyone, when you first meet, is always putting on their, their best show, aren't they? So, you know, sometimes you take a risk, it doesn't work, but this one paid off. So we were really lucky. And so what are the roles between yourself and Chloe? What does she do in the business? How involved is she in the day-to-day, the operations? Can you talk us through how Mm -hmm. you both operate in the business? So Chloe doesn't do any of the day-to-day operations at all. She is really still my test for when we're doing MPD, which is new product development. I'll send it to Chloe and get her feedback and what do you think of this? And she'll say, oh, you know, can you tweak this and tweak that? And so we work together very collaboratively like that because she is the person that uses this all the time, like our customers. It's really important to get her feedback. And then when we go into certain e-tailers and retailers, for example, we are launching into Ulta, which if you, I don't know if you're familiar with Ulta, it's the, one of the biggest beauty stores in the USA and they have 1,240 stores and we're doing a full store rollout, which is very exciting. 
So she does things like what she will do then is go and do a, a takeover on the altar Instagram and also announce, you know, about being an altar. So she's very hands-on when it comes to uh, e-tailers and retailers and, and marketing. I mean, it's great. You kind of have like a built-in beauty influencer, right? Like it's, yeah. a, it's yeah. a, turn the tap on, you can go at any time. It's fantastic. And obviously she loves the product, which is a huge endorsement. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Alter experience and getting into a retailer? Were you really clear from the get-go that's who you wanted to work with or was that an opportunity that just opened up? Well, it's interesting and that's a really good question because when we first started, we saw ourselves as being purely an e-commerce business. So that's really what we wanted. We, we actually launched in the US at the same time we launched in Australia and we saw ourselves as, you know, e-commerce globally. And then what happened, because it became Instagram famous, a lot of retailers started coming to us and reaching out saying, you know, we'd love, we've seen you and we'd love to, to range your products. So we now have such a big retailer, not just, we're just cracking the US market with Ulta, but we did Australia first. And then in the UK, we're in like Harrods, Selfridges, Boots, Holland and Barrett. There's many e-tailers, Cult Beauty, Beauty Bay. So a lot of e-tailers and retailers and it just, they want it and their customers want it. And what we learned was our customers actually channel agnostic. They don't care where they get it. They just wanted to be able to get it. And so if they're shopping at Beauty Bay, for example, and they'll add three or four or five items to their cart, they'll add the face halo as well. They'll come to our website for specials or a discount or to be loyal customers that way because we offer free shipping. And if that's all they're looking for, they'll come to our website. So going into the US market with Ulta is really, really important for us because it's already launched online there and it's just going really well. So to have that presence in the Ulta stores over there for the USA, a part of their conscious beauty movement, again, with Face Halo being at the forefront of sustainable beauty and clean conscious beauty, they've just started this program. So we're now going to be part of that, which is really exciting. It's amazing. You said earlier that your original vision for the brand was to be an e-com player a pure play e-com retailer, but obviously all of these retail opportunities mm-hmm. have come to you. Did you build those margins into your costs from the beginning or was that a was that a project that you sort of had to tackle and go retrospectively, okay, we're, gonna, we're going to expand into retail. We need to go back and, and build those margins in. Good question because it's all margin, margin, margin. Mm. Let me tell you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think I even dream margins. <laughs> No, because obviously on your own e-commerce, you've got a better margin in in that way. But to go back to your first question of did we have a patent? No, we didn't. So it's brand is barrier to entry. So we worked within the margins that we, we had already created in the beginning. And it's better to be, you know, because what you do is you build the volume and then you can you can work with those margins. So some brands that start off small when you first go into e-tailer or retailer, and of course the retailer takes their margin, it's hard if there's not the volume there, but now we've we've got lots of volume, so it it's works well. So you've got greater flexibility to bring your cost down or change your yep. margins. Yeah. Yes, yep. exactly. Yeah. And you also have online, we were having a bit of a cheeky peruse, you've got a subscription model, which I find really interesting. Is that something that a lot of your customers take up and how often are they coming back and repeat purchasing? 
Well, we're really fortunate because you would think because it's not FMCG, right, because it is a reusable and sustainable product, you'd be surprised that our return customers are 30% online, which is quite high. Uh, You know, it's about standard, but quite high for a reusable product. So not 50% that use the subscription, but it is a good percentage that use the subscription because they get that 10% and they get it sent every three months. And it's always been our motto that it's like a white T-shirt. Some people like a a white T-shirt to wear in and whereas me, I replace my white T-shirts every, you know, six months. And it's the same with your face halos. So some people like them to wear in, some people like to replace them every three or six months. I mean, I know people that have had the same face halo for two years and they care for it so well and it still looks really good. <laughs> That's quality for that you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not me. I like to change mine every three months. Yeah. And was that subscription model something that you decided to introduce because your customers were asking for it or was that something that you um, had always kind of planned to introduce? We had always planned to introduce that. We didn't know how that would work because of the reusability and the long length of the use of Face Halo. But what I do like about it is it gives people an option. So they can always get their 10% discount every time that they repurchase regardless and it gets shipped out to them for free as we have free shipping anyway. But they don't have to think about it. You know, if they do it for three months or six months, there it just arrives in the mail and they get that nice surprise. Yeah, but again, as I said, didn't know how it was going to work, but we're happy to keep it there. It's not a huge volume, but it still works well. Were there any kind of challenges or complications or obstacles that you had to overcome in introducing a subscription-based model? Not really because we use Shopify and Shopify is seriously the best website I've ever used. And it's all built in there. You can just build it in there and it's easy. I think one of the challenges is sometimes people sign up for it and they, you know, to get their, their discount, then they forget that they've signed up for it. And then they'll, they'll say six months later, oh, this has arrived. Uh, how did this happen? I'll go, oh, it's because you signed up for it. <laughs> That's it. Not many, but, you know, you still you get the odd one here or there. Yeah. Lizzie, is there a bit of a conflict here in terms of creating a sustainable, you know, reusable product, but then also offering a subscription model that you're now sending them out three every three months? Is there any conflict there? Because obviously you want people to buy them based on their usage. And obviously the longer the product lasts, the better. Have you found that? Is there like a tipping point where it's like, okay, we're actually selling so many of these that we have to start to think about, you know, is this actually good for the environment? Well, that's a very, very good question because exactly, we don't want them to end up in landfill just like single-use makeup wipes end up in landfill. So we've actually created an upcycling program where our customers send their old face halos back and they send them back in the UK and the US and Australia. All the details are on our website and we upcycle them and we actually have something really exciting that we're going to launch in March. So we'll be sure to let you ladies know as soon as possible. And we're going to be announcing uh, what we've done with those returns because you would be, I'm so pleased and impressed and it really makes me happy how many people actually return them. And even in some of them, even keep the packaging and return that, which again, we've got some exciting stuff that we've done with that as well. 
This may be a silly question, although there's Mm. no such thing as a silly question, but Mm. what's the difference between recycling and upcycling? So recycling is you actually put it in the rubbish bin and it goes to the people, like, you know, you've got your green bin, your red bin, your yellow bin, and you recycle it. That actually just goes to a factory somewhere and they look after it for you, okay? Upcycling is we take the product and we turn it into something else. Right. So you're taking this product. So you're obviously yes. not creating, and this is something that you must be launching soon or going to be telling yes. us <laughs> soon yeah. what it is. Yeah, it'll but, be launching in March, first week of March. That's exciting. I'm mm. really, really happy to hear um, that you do have an upcycling program. And I yep. I mean, I encourage everyone to kind of take that on and, and use that for sure. It is really important because, as you said, how can we say hand on heart, mm. you know, one face halo replaces 500 single-use makeup wipes and then, oh, but at the end of it, oh, you could just throw it and end up in landfill mm. as well. So we created this program so that didn't happen and we encourage all face halo users and we've got some even bigger plans coming th- out throughout the year to, to help us get more volume back as mm. well. And I think once people see what we've done with the old face halos, I'm hoping we'll get more volume back too. Hmm, I'm serious. Yes, I, I know. know. I'm, intrigued. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Yes, yeah. yes, I can't wait to show you. It's, Are these going to be new product for face halos? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it is an interesting question. We were asking, you know, what's your expansion plan? In, what does it look like from a product perspective? I mean, mm. you know, you've got the face halo, the traditional one. And I know you've come out with the X version and, you know, you've got the exfoliator. So, you know, it's a, it's a lean uh, range of products. Where do you go from here? So we've got a lot of NPD coming out 2021. We've got some exciting things happening that we, we took the time through COVID of not being able to travel in developing new product, which we'll be launching throughout the year. There is uh, lots of places we can go with face halos. So, yeah, it's exciting what's going to happen this year. Oh, I feel like you're being a bit coy here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was hoping for a scoop. <laughs> you don't understand how hard it is for me not to actually want to shout it from the rooftops because my husband always says I'm the person that I want to unwrap my presents before Christmas. If I buy you a present, I want to tell you what the present is. And it's so hard for me not to say anything. <laughs> How long have you been working on these products? How long does a normal new product mm. take for you to develop? And what does that process look like end to end? So, for example, with the Face Halo X, that came from listening to our customers about what they wanted. They wanted something that was, you know, a shorter fibre that got into more delicate areas of the eyes or, again, replace Q-tips or cotton buds and or cotton balls and reuse it as well. So that process took much longer than what I assumed it would because getting the right material was probably the most important there and then getting the shape right and the feel of it right. So with that, actually, when we launched, I got out all the prototypes that I'd worked with and, and I, I was up to prototype number nine by the time that one came out. And that process is working with my manufacturer, working with Chloe, taking Chloe's advice on on what she thinks would work, then working with them and getting the right material. So that's first. So what happens is I get all the raw materials and I work with them, I touch them and feel them, you know, experiment with them myself. And then choosing a couple to actually get made into the shape that we want, 
then that shape isn't correct. So you've got to you've got to work again to get a better shape. Then we had to get the lining. So that took about fourteen months. Wow. Oh. Mm. It's a long time. <laughs> I mean, you could come out with something super good, but yeah, you only get one chance to launch. So mm. if it's got to be right, and also, for example. We think, oh, Face Halo Original and Face Halo Pro has been around for so long, we need to come out with more. But, for example, in the USA now, Face Halo is so still brand new. The Original and the Pro are like, oh, this is all new. This is exciting. So then we now are just going to be careful about launching new products into the older markets first. Let's talk about launching into new markets. I would assume there would be a piece of education that you have to, you know, educate the market on what the product is, why it's better for the environment, why it's good for your skin. Is that the approach you're taking as well as obviously having Chloe on board, which definitely helps, but is it more around education? What's your marketing approach? So our marketing approach was when we first launched, it was really important when we first launched even though that sustainability in the environment was what we were really passionate about, we didn't. We wanted to flip it because we didn't want to come out and say, this is really good for the environment, you love that. What we came out and saying was, this is the best makeup remover you will ever use. Mm. And it's soft and it's plush and it's really gentle on your skin because it uses water only. And it'll clean your face better than anything you've ever used because it's actually designed to get into the pores and lift makeup and impurities out of the skin. So that was our first messaging. Then we started saying, and by the way, one face halo will replace 500 makeup wipes. And then the wave started and it was our customers who started saying, stop using, you know, makeup wipes, use face halo, it's so much better for your skin, better for the environment. And now we talk about that message, but we let our customers do it first Mm. by just letting them first realise that this is the best makeup remover you'll ever use. And because we're really passionate about banning single-use makeup wipes. And in the UK, now like Selfridges and Holland and Barrett, these retailers have actually banned the sale of single-use makeup wipes. Wow. Wow. That's what, yeah. It's, and so has the body shop. It's massive. Because in the UK especially, there's something like 11 billion makeup wipes that end up in landfill and in their waterways. And in Oxford Street, I think back in 2016, there was a big fatberg, mm. which if you see the pictures of it, yeah. it's mass. It's just a buildup of makeup wipes. So that now is for 2021. Now where we, people are knowing more that you know it is an, an amazing makeup remover and a great cleanser or for removing face masks, they know that it it does what we say it does. So now we're going to get more people about banning single-use makeup wipes. Yeah, that's just such a crazy statistic. When I read that, I just couldn't couldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. How does that sort of deeper purpose Mm. and meaning, how does that kind of drive your business decision-making? Do you look at everything through a sustainability lens first and foremost? Yes, yes, we have to because we need to walk the walk. And even like when it comes to our packaging, we started off with, I know our packaging, some of it's plastic. We started off with the plastic packaging and even though that wasn't ideal, we were doing that to get proof of concept and telling people to reuse them because you can travel in it, you can carry your wet ones in it or you can now send them back to us. But also we use that so they didn't go in poly mailers, which was extra 
waste, we could put just a sticker on the back of it and put it like an envelope into the mailbox. So there was the, there was a, a reason behind that and we have started rolling out. We started in the UK changing our packaging to recyclable cardboard packaging. I love mm-hmm. that story there because... We um, have a lot of women in our community who have, you know, all different kinds of businesses who are trying to figure out how to become more sustainable. And, you know, even um, someone that I was speaking to last week was talking about how she can improve her packaging. And she's like, well, I can't afford to make everything sustainable. So is there any point in me doing it? And I think the lesson that you've just shared is that do what you can, Mm. you know, I mean, you started off with X percentage of your packaging being sustainable, but be clear, I guess, about your goals and what you're trying to achieve and and being, I guess, transparent with your customers about the fact you're not there yet, but you are planning to get there and you will get there. That is 100% correct. And especially for startups like we were. And we've always said to our customers, we're not perfect, but we're better. So yes, we will get there. And it is a massive cost to go into that sustainable packaging. That's why we're rolling it out slowly. And yeah, we say we're not perfect, we are better. But look, uh, almost four years in, Face Halo has stopped over a billion makeup wipes ending in landfill and waterways. So we're really proud of that. So be proud of what you can do and then keep working toward even getting to no one's perfect. And truth be told, there is no such thing as zero waste ever in the world. But you can have less waste, you know, do better with less. Would your advice to business owners be, like you just said, that it's a massive cost increase to go fully mm. recyclable or sustainable? Would your advice be kind of do what you can afford to do right now in terms of improving? Absolutely. Do what you can do. And then like you said to Anna, is to be transparent with your customers and let them know what your journey is. And when you're authentic, because one thing that's I've always been passionate about too, is don't underestimate the consumer. I'm a consumer. We're all consumers. And I, you know, treat everybody as being intelligent. So if you be transparent and say, look, this is where we're at. We're planning to do this. Absolutely. But in the meantime, that's why I would say to customers, in the meantime, use it as a travel one to put your wet face halos in or hold on to it now. You can send it back to us or so and do that until we can get, you know, to the next phase. And they love us for that. Yeah, and they yeah. love us for that. Yeah, 100%. Go, okay, that's because when we I have had customers come on and say, I love your, you know, environmental, your sustainable story, shame about the packaging. And as soon as you tell them that story, they go, oh, great. Can't wait for that to come out. Thanks for letting me know. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, same. Great. Do you want to kick off with some final questions? Yeah, so we've got a couple of final questions for you. Okay. We would love you to give a shout out to a lady brain that's helped you over the last four years on your face hello journey. Okay, so, oh, there's a lovely lady who has been a great mentor and her name is Liz Webster. I think she's fantastic. She's been a a great mentor to me and to the team and, uh, yeah, I've really appreciated her assistance and help over the the last few years. Beautiful. Thank you, Liz Webster. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We love you, Liz. We love you, Liz. (laughs) (laughs) Another Liz. Another Liz. So many Liz's. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, What is one thing that you need right now? What do I need right now? You know, 
it's interesting, I think, you know, being from a startup and now we're moving from startup to the next level because you start with proof of concept and then you're in, really in startup mode for the first two or three years. Now we're just moving out of that. Uh, one of the biggest challenges has been finding a really great team and I think if you were to ask me what do I need right now, I think I've got it right now, which is the the, the best team that we've had since we started. They're a passionate team. They're creative. They're smart. They've got good vibes. <laughs> and every day is just a pleasure going into the office. I love working with them. And I think with a good team and people that are passionate and, you know, hardworking and smart and funny and you can you really can go to the next level. So it's great. What is one question that you are asking yourself? How did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think sometimes I have that imposter syndrome. Mm. Like, really? Me? But sometimes I listen to myself and I go, gosh, three or four years ago, I did not know that. So I think surrounding myself and just immersing myself into this business my daughter said to me, mum, you've got imposter syndrome. You've got to stop that, you know. So she's 20 now, you know, university <laughs> and works part-time at Face Halo. So she keeps me in check. I love that. And then we do actually have one final question. What's one lesson or piece of advice that you'd like to pay it forward to any of the lady brands that are listening? If no such thing as failure, it's only feedback. But if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail forward. Because that's actually how you learn the best is by making mistakes. But don't dwell on it. Don't sit there and go, oh, no. So fail fast and go, great, what can I take out of that? What can I learn from that? And then take it forward and move forward with that and imply it. Like, for example, that's what we did from our last business of what didn't we do that we can do better now. And that's that's the best way to do it, especially in the changing times. So, you know, fail fast, fail forward. Keep up with the times and keep moving with the times. It's really important. And if something isn't working and you can't get that proof of concept in six months, move on. Move on to the next thing. Because I think sometimes we can get too bogged down in trying to make it perfect or trying to get it right. Sometimes if it's not going to happen, move on fast. Yes. Brilliant advice. (laughs) What a great message about sustainability. Okay, so if you're looking to make your business sustainable but are overwhelmed at the potential cost of doing so, start with what you can do. Remember, you do not have to go from zero to 100 in one leap, but what is important is making the very small changes towards a more sustainable business where and when you can and being really clear and transparent with your customers about where you're at right now and where you aim to be in the future. Secondly, get proof of concept before you invest too much time, too much money and too much energy into a new product or idea. Lizzie suggested giving something six months to really gain traction in the market and this is a really good piece of advice. Put something out there, test the customer response and if it doesn't land, move on. And lastly, fail fast and fail forward. It can be really challenging to view failure in a positive light but it's really important because in business, it's an inevitability. If you want to hear a really honest chat about the value of failing when you're building a brand, go and listen to our episode with Jodie Fox. Her business, Shoes of Prey, went into liquidation shortly after she raised $27 million in funding and it was such a raw and valuable conversation about why failure is the best teacher that she's ever had. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe by clicking the subscribe button on your Podia. 
You can also find us over on Instagram at lady.brains, but the real magic happens in our Facebook group, the Lady Brains Clubhouse. Come join us. Lady Brains is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolich.